welcome to podcast number 38 in the series You Should Have Been There with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. And today we are going to be talking about pilgrimages and pilgrims and focusing in particular on the Camino de Santiago, the uh, way to or the road to Santiago de Compostela in uh, northwestern Spain. And I, I suppose, Simon, it's it's the best known of the many hundreds of amazing pilgrimages which you can uh, find and indeed attend around the uh, the world but uh, i i think this one probably wins the prize of the most popular pilgrimage amongst people who are not necessarily religiously inclined Absolutely agree. Yes, but partly because um, it's clearly very accessible to hundreds of millions of Europeans, um, partly because you can do as much or as little as you want, and partly because, well, it's a really, really good target you 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 are aiming for santiago de compostela uh, the relics of of saint james which itself is a beautiful journey and you kind of it gives you a sense of purpose um while for the rest of us of course we're just having frivolous holidays these people are doing the camino well let's talk a bit more about the difference between um, long distance walkers and pilgrims uh, a bit later on. But um, I have discovered that the Camino de Santiago in the 12th century, which you could call its heyday, uh, actually attracted about a million people a year to make what at the time was an incredibly difficult and indeed very dangerous journey. The best known of the many paths to Santiago actually starts at Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, which I suppose is the the nearest thing to a pilgrim's town one could find anywhere in the world. It's in the French Pyrenees, and it really is the the launch pad for your 800-kilometre or 500-mile walk then westwards to uh, Santiago de Compostela. It's known as El Camino Frances, the French way to distinguish it from all the other routes, and it's probably the most popular of all of them. And amongst all the people who are doing it now, and it's getting up to 300,000 people a year, either walking or on donkeys, bicycles, uh, with their dogs, with their children, with friends, on their own. Uh, but uh, a lot of them, of course, try and do it in one go, um, but lots of people don't. And amongst those are Richard and Deborah, who I spoke to earlier about their experience of walking El Camino Frances. We tend to do um, about a week every year. And we first started almost 10 years ago mm. to the day. We did our first little um, bit of it. Did you start at the beginning at Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port in France? We didn't because we'd been told that the first few days were really, really difficult and really steep and that it would be ill-advised and it would put us off. So we started at Pamplona and then did a week for a few years and then went back and did the beginning, the first few days, which were actually really easy. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting. Did you... Do the route over the top of the pass, the proper route, um, the one that you're not allowed to do in winter or you're ill-advised to do in winter. We certainly did. We certainly did and met some very nice Irish people, I seem to remember. Um, And it's very interesting, the first part, because um, 
every sort of 10 yards or so, there's a big pole, which I assume is there for um, when it snows, that you can actually see the top of the pole, even in really deep snow. That is true, because... I have actually done that stage. Uh, that is the only part of the Camino Frances I've actually done. And I walked it with Simon. Uh, and um, we did it uh, at a very bad time of year. It was in May and there'd been a, a very, very heavy, if somewhat unseasonal, fall of snow. And we were warned against um, doing that, uh, going over the, over the top route. Uh, and indeed, we did do it and we... Uh, were able to follow the path more or less because of those little bit, well they were, they looked like very little poles at the time because they were just sticking out above the snow that's interesting another thing about the beginning of the camino is um the newness of everyone's kit yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's, and everyone's got sticks and their rucksacks look immaculate um and by a couple of weeks in uh, people look very bedraggled mm. and a lot of people have dumped these massive rucksacks that they started off with. There are definitely different phases. The, the, there was one year that was the blister stage of the Camino where everyone was comparing their feet. Well, obviously, because we only do one week at a time, we, we're um, in a slightly different position. And we also get our luggage transferred, which... Um, some people very much frown upon. A German hiker, pilgrim, I should say, she almost spat at us oh, and gosh, said the name of the company, the kind of Sherpa company. She went, Jekatrans. That's not very um, forgiving or religious, but, but perhaps she was doing the Camino to try and, uh, uh, try and gain a sort of deeper love of her fellow human. Yes. No, I don't think she was succeeding. Did you have any kind of uh, religious reason for setting out on the walk? No, not at all. I mean, there is a sort of spiritual feel to doing it. I don't know if Deborah would agree, but um, everyone walking the, walking in the same direction. It's hard to describe, really. It's sort of very, just very calming. Um, yeah, and the camaraderie and the fact that you meet people... <clears throat> which can be annoying as well if they kind of want to walk with you for long distances and you've kind of had enough of them. But, um, but on the whole, it's really lovely to just be so free and meeting people and, yeah, that kind of spiritual experience. And, and just the simplicity is just fantastic. All you do every day is just get up in the morning and walk and you know where you're going, and you don't have to make any decisions apart from the food. And even that, you don't really have to make very many decisions. Have you actually got to uh, Santiago? Have you done what I think must be quite a, a sort of thrilling last stage, last steps of the way up to the cathedral? Yes, yes. Although my ankle, no, it wasn't my ankle, it was my knee oh. gave way about six kilometres before we got to Santiago. So I literally hobbled into Santiago in a great deal of pain, which was a bit of a shame, but it was wonderful to get there. Probably more wonderful if you do the whole thing in one go, Mm. which we will do one day. And then we walked three further days to um, Finisterre. So we got our certificate in Santiago and then got a further certificate 
Infinis Cup. Oh, well, congratulations. That's one of the things you can't do with most long-distance walks, I don't think, is it get get a certificate? Uh, Maybe there should be... Sorry, just to say, the certificate is great, but the nicest thing to have are the Pilgrim passports that you get at the beginning and you get them stamped all along the way so that by the time you get to Santiago, you have to have your Pilgrim passport that shows that you've walked at least the last 100 kilometres in order to get your certificate. But the passports are actually the brilliant memory of the walks because you get them stamped every day. Well, more than every day, because every little cafe you go into for coffee, you can get them stamped as well. That's true. That's true. And people at the roadside and in churches. If you were to um, look back on the, the experience of walking the Camino Frances in what I'm going to call... Uh, a very um, modern and up-to-date manner, which is doing it in a sort of um, pick and mix when uh, in the order that you would like to do it in and also without having to overburden yourselves too much. And I, I'm not saying, I'm not casting any aspersions here. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Um, what was your favourite um, day uh, on the Camino? I think Puente La Reina, which is just outside Pamplona, to mm. Estea was particularly yeah. beautiful and the Astaire is kind of high up mm. so walking up to there was absolutely stunning I, and just the scenery around there um, and that might be the stage or it's near the stage where there's also um, one of the days there's a wine fountain for pilgrims <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing it's just in the middle of nowhere at, just outside this bodega They've got um, red wine for passing pilgrims. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. And it's actually quite um, appropriate to something that I, I wanted to ask you um, about, which was um, um, whether yeah, you followed particular guidebooks when you were uh, traveling and whether or not you would be interested to know what the first guidebook uh, uh, to the route has to say about that particular stage because um, there is uh, and it's not readily available because I think it was written on three manuscripts before printing was invented but there is a guide to the uh, Pilgrim's Way written by a French monk called uh, Emery Picot uh, and is uh, dated to somewhere in the 12th century Uh, and it is absolutely brilliant Um, he advises what uh, uh, shrines you should visit and you know what remains of what saints you should stop off to look at uh, and uh, various spiritual things but he also has all of this amazing um, advice for people and he actually warns uh, the pilgrim that all the rivers between Estella, which you've just talked about, and Logroño, which is the next town, have water that is dangerous for men and beasts to drink, and the fish from them are poisonous to eat. Um, and they, uh, So, therefore, uh, you did very well to drink wine rather than local water. They might have improved the water by now. There are, along the way, many fountains with water rather than wine, um, you just have to make sure they're potable. Yeah, and also the guidebooks tell you where the water is. So yeah, um, yeah. Well, they've obviously improved. improved <laughs> well, I suppose time—a a few centuries have passed. So I suppose that would only be good. 
He also uh, warns you about the people of that region, the Navarrese, um, because uh, according to him, their speech is uh, utterly barbarous um, and that they are perfidious, empty of faith and corrupt and uh, libidinous. Uh, And indeed, he uh, had you been traveling with a donkey, which I think quite a lot of people still do actually um uh he says he advises you that you should padlock its um its nether parts because the people of uh, that particular region are um given to um bestiality oh god well i think the people like the water have obviously got better over the years have you met any characters who have really stayed with you as it were during your uh, during your pilgrimage no (laughs) it isn't like you know the film the way where you know everyone's really quirky and everyone's got some amazing (laughs) life story to tell you most people seem to be just kind of normal people just coming on a nice walk and um, getting a nice spiritual experience and meeting lots of people but um no no I think we've seen some amazing things like we've seen a guy who, with a prosthetic leg doing it. We've seen really, really elderly people doing it. We have seen people with donkeys doing it. We've seen mm. people with very young children doing it, which is really amazing. Mm. Doing it with kids, I think, is phenomenal. One thing I'd just like to say about the Camino is um, not that, I mean, many bits of it are really, really beautiful, but there's also parts of it that are not useful at all and you spend many days actually walking by the side of a motorway and also when you're walking into the big cities it can take sort of several hours to get through the suburbs and it's often not not really that beautiful but still there's still something quite magical about it even though you're not always confronted by amazing scenery Well, thank you, Richard and Deborah, who are now doing the walk to Santiago from another direction. Well, actually, they will be uh, next year because uh, this year uh, most things, uh, including their trip, have been put on hold. Anyway, they're doing the Via de la Plata, which is a lesser known uh, but very interesting pilgrim's trail from um, Seville in southern Spain northwards to Santiago de Compostela although of course it all ends in the same place and indeed there are as many ways of getting to Santiago as there are of skinning a cat wouldn't you agree Simon? I would I'm the uh, Inglés variant of course is the uh, shortest and easiest that was you you get on your your your, um, uh, uncertain ship from um, uh, what we now call the UK, and you would uh, sail across the Bay of Biscay to the port of La Coruña, where it was actually probably only three or four days um, to get you to Santiago, but it all counts in in love and pilgrimages. Well, actually, yes and no. Um, You actually only get your certificate, the prized certificate, which uh, Richard and Deborah referred to, uh, if you do the last hundred kilometers. So however much you've done before, if you don't do the last hundred kilometers, you don't get the certificate. And in fact, if you start from La Coruña and just follow the real trail, you don't do a hundred kilometers. You actually have to start from um, El Ferrol, um, Ah. which is another 
port in in yeah. Galicia, which has a certain amount of notoriety for being the birthplace of uh, Franco. Um, <laughs> so you, if you start from there, and in fact, I did start from there. I have done a couple of stages of uh, of that walk, and it's it's very lovely. Uh, but you clock up the necessary hundred kilometers, and therefore collect your certificate. Well, of course, lots of people aren't really in it for the certificates. They are in it for what it brings to them, um, certainly spiritually, but a kind of inner spirituality rather than a look, everybody, here's what I'm doing. Um, You mentioned all roads lead to Santiago. Well, one actually leads from Santiago going west. And this is the Camino um, de Fistera, um, which ends up at the edge of the world. Finis Terra, and it's a, it it kind of got popular um, round about the time when they were um, building up the uh, the marketing campaign for um, uh, Santiago, and uh, apparently the uh, disciples had to travel to um, the, the the end of the world to meet um, a Roman legion and ask permission to bury uh, St. James in Santiago. Um, that may or may not have um, any ring of truth about it, but it does constitute a lovely walk. As I was hearing from Louise, um, she walked this, um, picking up where the main trail ends, and afterwards I spoke to her. Um... On a scale of one to ten, how religious are you? About a six. Okay. Was that why you went on your pilgrimage? No. Why did you go on your pilgrimage? Because I wanted to walk, but I wanted to have a meaningful walk. Um, It was about doing nothing but walking rather than just walking to get from A to B. But you went from, with the greatest respect, A to B. And indeed C, D and E and even Finisterre, as I remember. Um, The only job you have to do is walk. And you can walk phenomenal distances that you didn't think you could walk because that's your job. And that's what you're doing each day. How did it change you? I walked away a lot of stuff that I needed to process. And I think that's what a meaningful walk gives you. Gives you the opportunity to do nothing but put one foot in front of the other... And you don't really have to try. It gives your brain a chance to have a bath and chuck out stuff that needs to get, be got rid of. And you can chat to your friend along the way when you're not busy processing negative thoughts, which is even better. Thanks to Louise for sharing her thoughts. And I've actually made this journey too. I would wholeheartedly recommend it, not least because of the superb countryside through which it takes you and the gorgeous Galician coast. So worth doing, even if you haven't got a spiritual bone in your body. I can imagine that actually, if you manage to watch the uh, sun setting at the end of the world at Finisterra, that must actually be a uh, a spiritual experience. Yes, it is. Um, and of course, um, it also signals the start of um, tapas and uh, a very long and um, uh, possibly quite uh, quite alcoholic um, Spanish <laughs> evening, which, of course, um, we as modern day pilgrims are able to do. But I don't suppose that you could um, uh, in- enjoy some tapas, go and have a lovely dinner and then stumble back to your hotel. I don't suppose it was always like that. Well, you get some idea of, uh, of of what the pilgrim of the 12th century faced um, by reading the 
yeah. Pilgrim's Guide by Emily Picot, which I was uh, chatting about with uh, Richard and Deborah earlier. And um, although uh, some of uh, Emily Picot's um, uh, judgments of the people who you would meet on the way were what you might call um, <laughs> on the edge of uh, acceptable. <laughs> um, he also had some very wise things to say about uh, uh, the dangers that faced you. Uh, I mean, there are, for example, <laughs> many references to the difficulties of crossing rivers and the dangers of dishonest ferrymen. So here's, here's an example. Uh, the way of St. James crosses two rivers which flow near the town of Saint-Jean-de-Sorde, which cannot be crossed mm. without a bark. May their boatmen be utterly damned. For although the rivers are quite narrow, nevertheless, they are in the habit of getting one coin from every person, poor as well as rich, whom they ferry across. And for a beast, four coins, which they undeservedly extort. And furthermore, their boat is small, made of a single tree trunk, scarcely big enough to accommodate horses. Also, when you get in, be careful not to fall into the water by accident. You will have to draw your horse behind you by the bridle outside the boat through the water. Get into the boat with only a few passengers, because if the boat be overladen with too many people, it will soon be in peril. Many times also, after receiving the money, the ferrymen take on such a throng of pilgrims that the boat tips over and the pilgrims are drowned in the water. Thereupon the ferrymen rejoice wickedly after stripping the spoils from the dead pilgrims. Oh, this is uh, well, tantamount to um, to people smuggling, isn't it? Uh, what awful thing. And what a what a extraordinary thing to read in a 12th century guidebook. Um, I uh, well, take my hat off to him for warning uh, the poor pilgrims, but... And that, that that's interesting because when we have walked parts of it, it's very clear that it's a kind of uh, that that is regarded by the whole community as a good thing, and so there are special um, dormitories for pilgrims and special menus for them, and everything is kind of organised in order to make their lives as smooth and inexpensive as possible. That's true because you quite often get quite significant discounts, don't you, for being a pilgrim or at least uh, uh, looking like one. I mean, I remember when we uh, spent a bit of time in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, the uh, the base camp for the uh, uh, Camino Frances, uh, we were uh, unable even to um, use the Wi-Fi in the pilgrim's office building because we weren't genuine pilgrims <laughs> serves us right yes exactly well they, it's good that they've got a kind of distinction between the 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 true believers literally and um and that the lightweights like us um but of course all kinds of pilgrimages for all kinds of purposes are available across the world well of course the greatest certainly in terms of numbers, is the Hajj, isn't it? Yes, and something that you and I cannot do, Mick, unless we convert to Islam. And if we do convert, then we must do it. It's a, a solemn duty. Uh, if you are physically and financially capable of undertaking the journey to the holy city, uh, holiest city in Islam, uh, to Mecca in Saudi Arabia, and you can support your family 
during your absence, you have to do it. And of course, hundreds of millions of people are Islamic. Um, they, I think they peaked at about 3 million people doing the Hajj. 2020, um, very, very different experience, of course, in terms of numbers. But uh, that is, uh, it has to be industrialized because, of course, um, in in earlier times, it was frankly impossible for it to be physically and financially possible for most Muslims to get there. But now, thanks to um, air travel, it isn't. And so it's all very, very highly organized. Um, and I suspect that in terms of actual numbers going there, it must now fast be approaching the Camino de Santiago in terms of um, sheer volume of pilgrims. Oh, yes, I, I would imagine it's surpassed it. I mean, oh, you mean the running total, as it were. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, walking total. Um, now, <laughs> I'm still not quite clear what the real difference is between going on a really long walk like the uh, Pyrenean trek, the GR10, which we have uh, rambled on about uh, probably quite enough in these podcasts. But I think that walking a long way and sort of stopping off on your journey in uh, simple accommodation and meeting other people who you really don't know from Adam and um, sharing chat and uh, glasses of wine with them is is a, a, an absolutely fine idea. And I think that getting to the end of any of these treks is is probably uh, a similarly uh, uh, cathartic and exciting experience. Yes, and looking at some of the other pilgrimages, pilgrimage sites, so so Rome, Jerusalem, um, even in the UK, uh, places as odd as as Bardsey uh, Island off the uh, northwest coast of Wales, um, Iona, of course, off the west coast of Scotland, and Furness Abbey, which feels as though it's uh, on the end of the world, but in fact it's in southern. Cumbria, but all of these, I think, for the participants, began to have an element of tourism about them. And I think just in the same way that uh, tourism marketing grew up, I think that, um, uh, that that pilgrimage marketing grew up at pretty much the same time. And so, yeah, the first time that ordinary people could travel um, for purposes other than being told to by their lord and master to go and kill some foreigners, um, was on a pilgrimage. Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure that's true. And I do think that medieval um, monasteries and um, abbots and priors were as least as canny about branding as uh, as um, uh, tourist organisations are today. If you manage to find, I shall put the find in inverted commas, uh, the... Uh, relics, uh, the thigh bone of a particular saint, and above all, a martyr, then you were quids in because you could attract people to uh, to your town um, in a way that I suppose, um, I don't know, discovering spring water or... Um... Well, yeah, no, normally you would um, have a, a miracle happening there. And um, if the miracle was there, I mean, look yeah. at Newt, uh a very kind of niche... Um, specialty pilgrimage site, which was, of course, um, the Virgin Mary appeared to a a, a French maiden, and um, uh, since then, um, anybody with a, an ailment just turns up at Lourdes in in southwestern France. And uh, I think, um, don't write in, but I think there's the number of hotel beds in 
Lourdes is second only to Paris. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> um, anyway, I think that's probably enough for today. But uh, next week, we are going to be talking about cycling. We are. We will be speaking to Anna Hughes, who, um, besides her environmental work, is also a bike mechanic. And she will try and get us into the nuts and bolts of what I think is a superb way of travel. Well, if I can really get organised, I might actually try and cycle up one of the extremely steep hills, which are to be found not that far from where I live in South London, and record the experience. I shall look forward to listening to it, but not actually joining you for for uh, reasons of um, of distancing. <laughs> that is a very very good excuse. So until uh, next week, from uh, me Mick Webb and me Simon Calder. Goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.